Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings. For all things legal and some that aren't, I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Hesselin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Mercedes. We're here today with Hank Greenberg, shareholder at Greenberg Trowick in Albany. He is also set to be president of the New York State Bar Association on June 1st, 2019. We're going to take a little trip in the Wayback Machine back about 100 years. Uh, Hank, and also, in addition to being a great lawyer, is a great student of history and considers himself a legal historian as opposed to an illegal historian, which is the, the worst kind <laughs> of historian. Um, welcome, Hank. Thank you for having me. Hank, we're going to go back uh, in the, the Wayback Machine to January 7th, 1920, when the uh, New York State Legislature was in session. Set the stage for us. What was going on in the country in January of 1920? So this is uh, what we're going to talk about is one of the more interesting and significant episodes not just in New York, even in American history, but in the history of the organized bar for the State Bar Association as well as the City Bar Association. But you're exactly right to want to talk a little bit about the climate because that will explain the events that unfolded. January 1920 was a period in American history that's commonly referred to as the first Red Scare. Most people know about the McCarthy era in the 1950s. I think fewer people remember that there was an even more virulent and aggressive and frightening um, period in American history from 1919 to 1920 after the First World War. America was victorious in the First World War, but the soldiers returned, and it was as if all of a sudden so many things erupted in America that caused this period of fear and even terror of radicalism, socialism, communism, and I'll explain a little bit more in a moment. Uh, it was a perfect storm of bad news. The soldiers returned, there were no jobs. So unemployment exploded. Inflation exploded. Labor relations were out there between management and employees, probably the most tumultuous period in American history. Strikes were breaking out all over the country. Organized labor and working class persons throughout the First World War lived in a period when there were prices set on wages uh, and on goods and services. So after the war, employees wanted to make more money, having seen their wages frozen for years, and, and employers were looking at the same time to do other things that put them uh, on a collision path. Race relations were unbearably awful in 1920, um, not just in the South, but in the North. There were riots um, in a number of cities throughout the country. And while all of that was happening in Europe after World War I, communism was on the march. Um, in 1917, uh, the Tsar was overthrown uh, during the Russian Revolution, and a group came into power led by Lenin and Stalin that were known as the Bolsheviks. Um, their movement and their ideology found favor in a number of countries in Europe, including Western Europe, including um, Germany, um, and other places in Europe where unemployment and the devastation of war created a fertile environment uh, for that particular ideology at that time uh, to take root. 
So in America, with all of these things seemingly going bad, with the country in many ways seemingly out of control, there was a logical desire to look for explanations and scapegoats. And so in 1919 and 1920, um, elected officials, ambitious elected officials, uh, took the opportunity to sort of exploit that fear and stoke it up to even higher and higher heights, such that in 1919 and 1920 there was literally a terror in parts of the country over communism, uh, the Bolsheviks and their way of thinking, taking over American institutions. And that's sort of the background to what unfolded in early January. So there was this uh, overriding fear of Russians infiltrating our government a hundred years ago. Do you think that could ever happen again? No, in inconceivable, inconceivable. <laughs> um, but uh, you're quite right. That was the fear, certainly in January 1920. So now let's uh, move into what's going on in New York. Uh, there's an election in November of uh, 19, uh, November of 1919, and the voters elect to the assembly 110 Republicans, 35 Democrats, and five Socialists. Um, they come up to Albany on January 7th, and uh, the legislative session starts, and, and then what happens? Well, it, it's sort of hard today looking back to imagine a time when there was uh, not just third parties in New York State politics, but a, a significantly influential and powerful third party that was able to elect in significant number of representatives, and that was the Socialist Party. Um, socialism as a third party movement, not just in New York, but in the country, was a significant thing. And as you said, in the election of November 1919, five socialists were elected to the State Assembly from New York City districts mostly districts with large Russian and Jewish immigrant populations. Uh, there were five in 1920, but uh, the preceding election there were actually ten elected socialists. Um, just one quick footnote, um, because there may be some notions about what social is, socialism is today as it exists um, in some, some countries. To be a socialist capable of being elected to the New York State Legislature in 1920 would make you the equivalent of a moderate Democrat today. They believed in things like increasing the minimum wage and having a state university system and regulating utilities. So although they uh, marched under the banner of the Socialist Party, they really were, in contemporary terms, very progressive. They were influenced by Marxist ideology, but in terms of the policies that they subscribed to, Many historians have sort of looked back and said Franklin Roosevelt in the New Deal, which came 12 to 15 years later, simply took the policies that were advocated by the socialists and made them American policy. Now, um, at the time, uh, there were socialists, uh, a socialist party throughout the country mm -hmm. uh, that had uh, candidates that were uh, running. Uh, that may or may not have had any connection with uh, communists in, in Europe and well, overseas. Well, absolutely right. And, um, for example, Eugene Debs, who was the most prominent socialist, ran for president on a number of occasions and in 1912 got a significant percentage of the vote. Um, not to get too far into the weeds, 
um, but there were two wings to the Socialist Party um, after the Russian Revolution. There were left-wing socialists that ultimately broke off into the American Communist Party. And then there were more conservative or right-wing socialists or socialists, as they were uh, criticized by the more radical folks. It was that more conservative wing of the Socialist Party that was actually able to run and win elections in New York State and in other parts of the country. So these, uh, these five gentlemen are elected to the Assembly and they, they come to Albany uh, for the uh, beginning of the session and then what happens? Well, um, to the amazement of all um, and virtually every member of the New York State Assembly because really only two members of the Assembly knew what was going to happen. There was the Speaker of the Assembly and his lieutenant. The Speaker was a gentleman from Oswego, New York by the name of Thaddeus C. Sweet. He was at that time the longest serving speaker of the lower chamber of the New York State Legislature. He was an ambitious man. He wanted to be governor. Um, and at the time, January 1920, there were a number throughout the country of opportunistic politicians that seized on fighting radicalism and were able to do so in a way that maximized their public exposure largely at that time in a positive light. So Speaker Sweet, with all of his ambition, came up with an idea unknown to American government at the time. His notion was that the five socialists in the assembly, not because of anything they personally did, any wrongdoing or corruption or anything like that, but because they belonged to a party that in Speaker Sweet's view was contrary to the best interest of the state and nation, that was committed to the overthrow of government as we know it. By the way, that wasn't true. But Sweet, you know, maintained that that was the case. He presented on the floor of the assembly on January 7, 1920, the opening day of the legislature, which is in its own way sort of a festive occasion as all the legislators come back to Albany for the first day of session. Usually all that gets done on that day are organizational issues like electing the speaker, and other leadership positions in the assembly. Speaker Sweet surprised everyone in the House by putting a resolution on the floor for which no debate would be allowed. And that resolution called for the immediate suspension of the five socialist members with a trial to be later had a few weeks thereafter by a committee of the assembly, the Judiciary Committee. So with no warning, taking everyone by surprise, the Speaker put on the floor this resolution and called for an immediate vote. The only people that attempted to speak to the issue were the Socialist members who claimed that the process that the Speaker was proposing was not only unprecedented but contrary to the rules of the legislature. They were right. Suspending a member without any prior allegations or accusations and due process was unknown in the legislature at the time. But the five members objected, uh, didn't do them much good because the speaker called for a roll call vote and ultimately um, overwhelmingly 146 members of the legislature cast their vote. The only people that were in opposition were the socialists and two other members of the legislature who were in districts where there were strong socialist support. 
Uh, it stunned everyone in the chamber, and it stunned the nation. Uh, the following day, it was front-page news that the majority of a legislature sought to remove from the House persons, not because of anything they did, but because the majority didn't believe or like the views of the members they suspended. So you say that you know it was it was stunning that uh, these uh, legislators were removed from office merely because of their political affiliations, not because of anything they did, and that across New York and across the country people were stunned by this. But did because of the Red Scare, did people, did anybody of any prominence speak up? Uh, exactly the right question. Um, people at first didn't know what to make of it. In the climate of the Red Scare, many people, for example, the New York Times, wrote editorials supportive of what the legislature did. Um, so many people sort of instinctively reacted to it as, in a favorable light. But then there were some that sort of scratched their heads and wondered, what about representative government? Don't people in legislative districts have a right to vote for whoever they choose? And can the majority seek to remove them simply because they disagree with their views? So, you know, while editorial sort of tentatively seems supportive, within 48 hours, at that time, the greatest New Yorker then living, or at least the most prominent, Charles Evans Hughes spoke out within 48 hours. A word about Hughes. Um, in 1920, Charles Evans Hughes was the most eminent lawyer in the state and nation, without question. And he was also the titular leader of the Republican Party. And I sort of make that point because the legislature that removed these five socialists were overwhelmingly Republican. Hughes at the time was a former two-term governor of the state of New York a former associate justice of the United States Supreme Court who in 1916 actually stepped down from the court to run for president of the United States against Woodrow Wilson. He went to sleep election night thinking he was the next president of the United States. He lost in California by a few thousand votes and was out of a job uh, after election day 1916. Um, so he went into private practice and just incidentally was immediately elected president of the New York State Bar Association. Um, he served as president from 1917 to 1918. But in January 1920, the name Hughes carried enormous weight and credibility and respect. And he wrote an open letter to Thaddeus Sweet, which he released to newspapers throughout the state. And on the front pages of newspapers all throughout New York and the nation, Charles Evans Hughes condemned the actions of the New York State Legislature as contrary to fundamental principles of American government. And this is significant that he came out because, as you said, he was such a prominent Republican leader, prominent statesman in the country. And this action that was taken was by a Republican leader in, in the Assembly. Um, and so he was actually speaking out against a member of his own party. And so that carried some more significant weight. Absolutely. And, and interestingly enough, Hughes was widely regarded as the soon-to-be next president of the United States. He had narrowly lost in 1916, and many people thought that he was a sure shot in 1920 to get the Republican nomination and ultimately become president. And if he wanted the nomination, which um, we probably don't have time to get into the reasons why he didn't at the time, owing to 
personal things in his life, he surely would have been elected. Uh, Warren Harding became president in 1920. Charles Evan Hughes surely would have been. So all of this prominence and people sort of thinking him as a potential candidate for president and perhaps the next president coming out and condemning a Republican-controlled legislature was itself even more stunning than the act that occurred two days earlier. Tell us, uh, what was he involved? You said he was a past president of the New York State Bar Association. How did the Bar Association react, the city bar and the state bar react to this? Well, ju just another footnote. At the time he made this statement, he was president of county lawyers hmm. in New York City. And in a couple of years, he became president of the New York City Bar Association. But how did the organized bar react? Well, Hughes was not consent, content just to write an open letter. And there were a number of members, um, pillars of the bar, particularly in New York City, that were outraged um, by what Speaker Sweet had done, including very prominent Republicans, not just Hughes, but others like former Attorney General George Wickersham. Um, and many of them were members of the Association Bar of the City of New York, as it was then called. Um, they were determined to do something about it rather than just issue a statement saying they thought it was a bad idea. As it happened, the City Bar Association the following week and the State Bar Association that week both were to have their annual meetings. So on January 7, there's the suspension. The following week, Tuesday, January 13, first the City Bar was going to have their annual meeting. And a petition was circulated within the City Bar Association that was signed by people of such prominence you can't imagine any other document quite like it save the Declaration of Independence. Judges, Hughes, Wickersham, the most eminent lawyers in the state and therefore the nation, signed this petition condemning the actions of the assembly as un-American, using the most harsh terms imaginable. And also this petition called for the City Bar Association to appoint a delegation of lawyers to go to Albany and object to what had occurred at a trial of the socialists that was to begin on January 20. So, so the, the Bar Association didn't form a committee to study the issue for two years. Oh, no. <laughs> Speed of light. <laughs> Right? Not even in the Internet age. Right. Immediately acted and, and, and acted with a, a, an acute sensitivity to the media at the time. Uh, this petition was debated on the evening of, Jan of January 13, 1920. The debate um, started at about 8.30, went to 1 in the morning. Um, no holds barred. Uh, ultimately, Hughes and his colleagues carried the day by a reasonably close vote. At the Bar Association. At the Bar Association, the City Bar Association, which, as I said, one condemned the actions as un-American, two said, we're going to send a delegation. Um, that event, the following day, plastered on the front pages of newspapers in New York and across the country. Just because of the nature of the language that was used that was critical of the assembly, and the eminence of the people within the association that opposed what the assembly had done. And then uh, there was a similar debate uh, at the State Bar Association? Right. So Tuesday, the City Bar, January 13, they uh, passed their resolution. The following weekend, 
the State Bar Association was going to have their annual meeting as it happens also in New York City and it also occurred in the same place and the debate was to take place in the same room, the Great Hall of the City Bar Association. Sweet's allies saw the State Bar Association meeting as an attempt, if you will, in a sense to reverse what the City Bar proposed. Mm -hmm. And so they had their allies within the State Bar Association's House of Delegates put a resolution on the floor actually calling not for criticism of what the legislature had done, but for a neutral stance. And so that Saturday there was another grand debate with the most eminent figures of the profession, one after another, including Hughes, fighting it out. And ultimately, that proposal for the State Bar Association to take a neutral stance was defeated. Again, it was a close vote. And that event was plastered on newspapers all throughout the state of the nation. And so you had these two great associations within the space of a week's time on the most volatile, controversial issue you could imagine one that was dividing the nation in an infinite number of ways, taking a principled stand in favor of representative government and basic principles of democracy. Um, but the opening day of the trial, yes, they had a trial in the New York State Legislature. They turned the assembly chamber, believe it or not, into a courtroom. And it was a trial that ultimately occupied 21 days. The transcript is nearly 3,000 pages long. And you've read all of it. Uh, I haven't heard all of it, but I will tell you what was most, the most dramatic moment by far was the opening day of the trial, because that was the day when the delegation from the bar was going to appear and make their views known. The assembly chamber was packed to the doors. There was lines outside of the chamber to the streets of the Capitol building to come in and watch. Watch what? Watch Charles Evans Hughes and a delegation of lawyers come and object to what was going to happen. The chairman of the Judiciary Committee pounded his gavel to begin the proceedings, and Hughes stood up in the back of the assembly chamber and marched to the front, demanding to be heard. He then began to repeat many of the ideas that was expressed in the petition, and to answer your question, what happened, the assembly threw him out. They physically threw him out of the chamber, refused to hear what he had to say, and ultimately the assembly at that juncture was a lost cause. They had staked out, the speaker had staked out a position from which he ultimately could not retreat. The trial ultimately ended at the end of March. By a seven to six vote, the Judiciary Committee called for the expulsion of the five socialists, and on April Fool's Day, the legislature as a whole voted to expel the five socialists. Fast forward a couple of months, the governor of the state of New York, Al Smith, called for a special election to fill the vacancies. What happened? Democrats and Republicans ran fusion candidates. In other words, they joined and endorsed single candidates to try to defeat the socialists, all five socialists were re-elected by larger margins than they had been November 1919. What did the legislature do? When they finally came to Albany to be seated again, the legislature once again 
caused the removal of the five socialists. So they won. They went after all this, getting expelled. They, they ran again against the, uh, a fusion candidate, and the five socialists won again in their districts. Right. And those uh, voters in those districts were again denied the representation that they had. 60,000 voters uh, were denied representation. Now, you might think, what a sad story. Um, were the efforts of the organized bar, did they come to naught? Was it futile? And the answer virtually all historians that have viewed this episode have concluded is no. What used it, what the organized bar did, turned the tide of the Red Scare. Editorial boards, policymakers, thought leaders around the country for the first time came to grips with the idea that the country was losing its mind. If we're going to have legislators removing people because we don't like what certain people think, what will be left of American democracy? And so, in a sense, what used the organized bar, city bar, state bar together ended up doing was taking a pin to the balloon of the Red Scare. And not long thereafter, no one remembered the craziness of what had occurred in 1919-20, and America was soon immersed in the Roaring Twenties. Hank, what lessons can we take from this event that occurred 100 years ago to today's political climate? Well, I'd say a couple of things, at least um, uh, in terms of what's happening in American government and politics and policy today, the, you know, the, uh, the old biblical notion that there's nothing new under the sun, well, it's true, at least in the sense that we're seeing, at least in American political life in some quarters, attempts to scapegoat um, the other um, in the minds of some people to help them understand why they're not happy with their lives. Uh, we see that with, I think, uh, a lot of the debate involving immigration in America today. Um, and that's unfortunate, but the parallels are, are, are rather striking. Uh, the lessons, though, that, that seem to me most valuable is uh, what the organized bar did um, in January of 1920. Distill those lessons, at least in my mind, uh, there are a couple. One is the need um, to stand up for principle, um, even on controversial issues. Uh, because it's the right thing to do and also because there is the opportunity to influence public events on fundamental issues of American governance, democracy, the rule of law. Um, that takes courage, uh, but they had that courage in 1920. I think we have it today. Hopefully, uh, we pray we're, we'll never see an episode quite as awful as what the legislature tried to do in 1920. Um, but the need to sort of understand, even if an issue is controversial, if it goes to the very essence of American governance and politics and the rule of law, the organized bar needs to stand up and can make a difference. Of course, relevance. Um, uh, I, I don't think any one of the bar leaders, when they did what they did at the time, were thinking about, was it good for the association? But as a practical matter, at least historians for the city bar have recognized that as by far its finest hour. Uh, state bar, city bar found themselves in a positive light on the front pages of newspapers across the country. Being relevant is important and valuable. The other point, and I think you made it, was 
um, in, 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 in times of crisis, um, the organized bar needs to act with speed. Um, um, just imagine in 1920, no internet, telephone communication um, existed, but was largely limited. In the space of 48 hours, the pillars of the organized bar began to galvanize and rally around a cause. Uh, in this case, um, it wasn't a cause of an individual. It was a, a, a cause for a principle, representative governance. And um, those are at least a few lessons, at least, that I can draw from it. Well, thank you, Hank. It's a fascinating story with, I think, some amazing parallels to uh, what we're going through uh, today. As you said, um, there's nothing new under the sun. And uh, we see uh, similar themes uh, throughout our history. We have a feature on Miranda Warnings at the end where we ask you to share a movie book or movie, or music rather, movie book or musical performance that means something to you that you want to uh, share with us. Um, well, there are so many sort of books, music that, you know, have uh, had an impact on me over the course of my life. I, I just, you know, uh, I think sort of the cultural episode that struck me from the perspective of a lawyer and, and, and even the bar uh, that's most significant is the musical Hamilton, uh, which just features the, the person who was the most prominent lawyer in New York in the 18th century by far and was also one of our founding fathers and also um, you know, the first Secretary of the Treasury and, and, and in some ways prefigured the American economy as we know it today. So, you know, for those of you who haven't seen the musical, uh, it's really worth seeing. It's an extraordinary, extraordinary experience. Thank you. We're Hank Greenberg, thank you for sharing with us and uh, thank you for your thoughts on this uh, tremendously interesting historical event in New York State. Thank you're, you, Hank Greenberg. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. This has been the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings for all things legal and some that aren't.